Hey everybody, I'm Eugene Driscoll. Welcome to Naval Gazing, the Valley Indie Podcast. This, if you have eyes, is a video podcast this week, and I'm very uh, honored to welcome to the program for the first time ever, Mr. George Cabrera. Hello, George. Hey, Eugene. How are you, buddy? Not bad at all. So, uh, Mr. Cabrera is the endorsed Democrat running to represent the 17th State Senate District, which includes Ansonia, Beacon Falls, Bethany, uh, and you can probably hear my kids screaming in the next room. <laughs> my mother, uh, their mom's at work uh, today. But anyway, Derby, Hamden, Naugatuck, and Woodbridge. And it's not like I just told the kids, hey, can you guys be quiet for maybe 30 minutes? <laughs> so Mr. Cabrera is one of two candidates looking to challenge Republican incumbent State Senator George Logan uh, in the fall. The other Democrat looking to do that is Justin Farmer. And a Democratic primary between Mr. Farmer and Mr. Cabrera is scheduled for August 11th. So uh, a caveat, as I complain to anyone who will listen, I am not a state reporter. I do not cover state issues on a daily basis. So I really have no business having Mr. Cabrera or before this, uh, Mr. <laughs> Farmer on. But hey, a part of the mission of the Valley Indy is to uh, introduce you to candidates. There is, on this recording, the primary is a week away. So uh, why not? But again, if you have any uh, hate you want to throw my way, just go ahead and do it. I, I, I don't care. But uh, all right, so we went over a bunch of uh, policy debates or policy issues during a debate uh, about a week or so ago. Uh, so I, actually, before I should, I should just read, this is a very important message. It's not a sponsorship, but just something I want to share uh, in every podcast. It's from the Valley Community Foundation, uh, Valley United Way, and others. COVID-19 has changed life as we know it, and the Valley needs your help now more than ever. The region's health and human service providers face unprecedented challenges in meeting the needs of those affected by the pandemic. Some organizations are even at risk of closing their doors. You can make a difference right here in our community by joining with others in three ways. Give directly to Valley nonprofits, participate in the Valley United Way annual campaign, or support the Valley Community COVID-19 Response and Recovery Fund. To learn more, please visit valleyfoundation.org. Okay, sorry about that. Oh, that's good. So let's get the negative stuff uh, out of the way, uh, if, if you don't mind. I want to ask a sort of a challenging question, one that was like on our list of questions when the New Haven Independent and the Valley Independent team to do this debate. But I, it, we all thought like one minute is not nearly enough time uh, to answer this question. So it, it pops up on social media all the time. As recently as yesterday, on one of your supporters' private pages, someone had, had brought this up. Uh, and it, it goes back uh, a few years ago, Kevin Rennie, who is a columnist, former lawmaker, uh, blogger in the state of Connecticut, he published a blog post basically asking whether you were the George Cabrera Jr. who was fined $750 something like 20 years ago for, quote, being present while a Platte Street resident marked his absentee ballot and taking possession of the ballot, unquote, according to a 2011 summary in the Connecticut Post newspaper. Uh, I'm sure you've seen these posts. I just want to give you a chance to uh, talk about that incident. So about 20 years ago, uh, actually 20 years ago, um, I was in a campaign uh, challenging the established political machine in Bridgeport. And um, as a, after the election, um, as part of retribution and to intimidate me, a complaint was filed. 
along with many other people. At the time, I have, was actually living in uh, Massachusetts. I just graduated from college uh, in 1998, and I was uh, also about to get married. And so um, I had to hire an attorney um, to basically represent me to deal with this complaint. And because of my financial situation at the time, uh, having just graduated from college and not having much money, I couldn't afford to go through the process. It was too expensive. Uh, I was traveling back and forth from Massachusetts to come meet with uh, the SEEK investigators. And uh, on advice of counsel, we decided to sign a consent agreement, which uh, said that uh, I did nothing wrong because I did it. Um, and we were able to settle the matter. And, uh, you know, it was one of the one of those things that I, that I had to do um, to move on. And um, the good important thing is in the consent decree, the, the, nothing was wrong. I you know, denied, obviously, you know, uh, everything that was alleged. What was the it, allegation? Because when I read that quote from the Connecticut Post from that blurb, I don't understand. And I'm not an SEC uh, uh, yeah. expert. What was the allegation? The allegation was that um, I witnessed someone fill out an absentee ballot and then handled it, uh, which I completely denied in the consent agreement. It's untrue. And um, because, uh, again, at the time, not having much money and uh, I couldn't afford to go through the process. So uh, we decided on advice of counsel uh, to sign a consent decree and settle the matter so it can, uh, we, can we can resolve it. And we did. But, you know, it's, it's part of what uh, kind of jaded me about politics. I was a young man. And yeah, um, how, how old were you, George, back? Oh, gosh, years <laughs> I was a lot, I had more hair. Um, I was probably, it was 2000, I believe. Uh, so it was 20 years ago. So I was 20, uh, I don't know, 21, 24 years old, something like that. Just getting started in politics. Uh, it, it was a difficult experience, but this is what happens when you challenge the established political machine. And it was part of a retribution that went on to intimidate me and to silence me. And uh, kind of jaded me for a little while, to be honest, about politics. Um, this is one of the things that I think discourages people from wanting to get involved in politics, is having to deal with these kind of like gutter politics, smear things that happen sometimes um, because people just don't have the money to uh, go through the process to fight back. But the important thing is that it was a complaint. Um, it, you know, I denied uh, all the allegations and I was pretty confident if, we, if I had the resources to go through the whole process that everything would have been found. Um, that you know, they didn't have substantial evidence to prove and, uh, what and they, they alleged. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Yeah, that's fine. The, the other thing I would ask, have you addressed this before? I know, because I remember it was brought up two years ago, at least in the comment section. I, I, it was, I, I think I remember seeing it a couple of days before the election. Uh, yeah. Have you addressed it publicly before? Has anybody ever written a story on this or anything like that? I just. Oh, so, uh, I'm sure you can understand, Eugene. Part of uh, being a public official, public face, and running for office, you get all kinds of trolls on Facebook. You get all kinds of negative uh, mudslinging thrown at you. Not everything merits a response. Um, we know what the facts are. They're in the consent decree. It's public knowledge. Um, it was 20 years ago, like I said, and uh, we we're. I'm very confident that you know had I had the resources to go through the process, but at the time that uh, it would have been found uh, just fine. So that's the important thing to know. And then moving on slightly, but the other thing uh, that keeps coming out from uh, uh, political opponents is, well, uh, George Cabrera, he switches parties all the time. There's been uh, uh, documents circulating on social media, sort of outside, outside. Of, my, of my realm. But uh, there is this, this allegation, this assertion that, well, you don't have loyalty to the Democratic Party because you've, you've been in and out of it. Uh, yeah. Is there any merit to the, have you switched parties a lot? 
no, I mean, I, I have switched parties in the, in the past. It was, you know, a couple of times, I believe, and it was a time in my life where I was kind of like, you know, doing some soul searching and figuring out like a lot of people, what I believe in and what I care about. In retrospect, it was a mistake. Um, but my record speaks for itself. 25 years fighting for working men and women, uh, working on tons of Democratic candidate races. Uh, just last year in the Valley, as you know, Eugene, electing four new Democrats to the Ansona Democratic Talent Committee and coming within a hair of electing uh, a Democratic mayor in Derby. So the record, my record speaks for itself. Um, you know, this was a period of time where I was doing some soul searching. And, and uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's something that, that a lot of people do. And, and uh, I'm a Democrat and have been for a long time. Uh, and then in speaking to, I mean, you, you ran against Senator Logan, I guess it was two years ago, right? Yep. Seems like a thousand, but no, two years ago. And you lost by something like 77 votes. Yep. Uh, it, it's interesting to hear your opponent's campaign, sort of their take on that loss. They're, they say that, well, no, that that's not a lot of votes because... Uh, if anything, that was the Democrats' race to win based on the blue wave uh, that was happening. Uh, how do you respond to that assertion? Well, let's go back in time a little, right? I mean, in 2018, um, I had never run for office. No one knew what, um, who I was or you know, where I came from, and we put on an incredible race. Um, we uh, were victorious in uh, getting the Democratic nomination at the convention. We, you know, emerge as the victors in a three-way primary. And then we came within a hair of uh, defeating George Logan in the fall, 77 votes, as, as you said. Um, and so, you know, we just continue to do what we're doing and continue to work hard to uh, try to elect Democrats and people who want to fight for working men and women. That's what I've been focused on um, for the last couple of years and, and pretty much my whole career. And, and let me just ask, which town cost you the election in 2018? Have you figured, I mean, you're not going to tell me, I don't think, but who have you zeroed in on where you needed uh, to be more present? Or is that just a idiotic reporter question? No, I mean, I mean, I mean it's, it's a seven town district, as you mentioned at the top of our discussion. It's a big district. There's a lot of ground to cover. It's impossible to talk to everybody. I try to do my best to reach out to as many people as possible. And, um, you know, we, we firmly believe that we're in a very strong position to win this year. And, uh, you know, last time around, it was, uh, I was a newcomer. I am not anymore. Um, I received almost 19,000 votes last time. I think we're in a much stronger position. We have a base of support. We've spent the last two years building power in the Valley, um, in Estonia and Derby uh, and other parts of the district. And so I think it puts me in a very good position to win this year. Yeah, I mean, one thing, uh, you were pretty much immediately after uh, the recount was done in 2018, I see you in the Valley all the time. Uh, so it really seems yeah. like you're concentrating uh, on Derby and, and Sony. I see you more than some elected officials. Uh, <laughs> at Ver it's at the point where I have to, I'm cutting you out of articles because I don't know if it's fair because it's so close to uh, uh, election day or primary. Uh, yeah. You are, so it seems like Derby and Sonia, you're definitely concentrating there. I love the Valley, you know, um, the Valley reminds me a lot. Um, of the, the people that I grew up with, my mom and dad, who were working class people who came to came here with uh, very little formal education, but a strong work ethic, they, strong family values, strong sense of community. And uh, you know, I have a nephew who lives here. I have friends who live in Ansonia and I, I'm there often. Um, those are the people I wanna fight for um, because they remind me of my parents. And the reality is that for too long, the Valley has been left behind. 
um, by politicians, um, by elected officials who give lip service to their, their struggles, but when elected, really don't do anything. They love showing up for the photo op and smiling and uh, talking a good game, but they don't do anything. They don't roll their sleeves up and really get into it and fight hard. And um, this is personal for me. Um, we need to fight back. We need to make sure that the Valley um, provides the opportunities for people to get into the middle class and stay there, whether it's healthcare or living wages or having a voice on the job or just making sure that one job is enough to support your family. And those are the things I believe in. And when, I see, when, I, when I'm in the Valley knocking on doors and talking to people, those are the people that, um, that I love. Those are, you know, the, it really just stokes my passion and reminds me of my family and, and the, the struggles and the fights that they went through to give me uh, and my family the opportunities that they can only dream of. And that's what I want to do for the Valley. And so in terms of your family, let's talk a little bit about where you're, where, where you're from, uh, what did mom and dad do for a living, brothers yeah. and sisters. Talk about that a little bit, if you would. Sure. My dad uh, came here when he was 18 years old from Puerto Rico. Um, he came, was supposed to come here for a year and make some money. Uh, didn't have a formal education, um, but really a strong work ethic and strong family values. And he worked his tail off in uh, very difficult jobs in factories. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes working the graveyard shift. Um, many times he took an extra part-time job as a janitor. Where were uh, some of the places he worked? Different. Where were some of the factories? Uh, he worked at, at Bridgeport Fittings in Stratford. Um, you know, so uh, there was um, a couple of factories in Stratford that he worked. He was in the plating business. So he was a foreman. They would do the coating on a lot of the circuits and a lot of the things like uh, outlets and things like that. Um, back, back when we had good factory jobs. <laughs> Uh, not anymore. Um, and so he just worked really hard. My mother uh, tried her best to work. She's an asthmatic, so she had a lot of medical issues and wasn't able to work a lot consistently. So healthcare uh, was something that I learned a lesson about really quickly because we just didn't have really good healthcare, and she was often in and out of the hospital. Um, and where'd you live? Where where where'd you live? Growing? Where'd you grow I grew up? up? In, I grew up in Bridgeport. And I grew up in Bridgeport, and then um, you which know, part of Bridgeport? Uh, we were on the west side of Bridgeport for some time, and then we moved to the north end of Bridgeport. Um, and so we, we spent our lives there and, um, you know, just seeing the struggles they went through and the difficulty they went through uh, just inspired me. And, you know, they did uh, an amazing job and was able to cobble together some student loans and some financial aid and get to college at Quinnipiac University, where I majored in political science and history, and then got my first job in politics, uh, working in the legislature for the Speaker of the House. And so do you have brothers, sisters, siblings? Yeah, I have, I have a younger brother um, who's uh, about a year and a half younger than I am. He's, um, he works in the court system. He's a judicial marshal. And uh, he said that's what he does for a living. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we're just a typical you know, working class family that, that believes in the value of hard work. And those are the values that I carry forth in this campaign. Those are the values I'm going to bring with, with me to the state senate. And then uh, so what, what year did you graduate high school? Graduated high school in 1994, Eugene, long time ago. <laughs> George, you're younger than me. <laughs> it makes you feel good. <laughs> I graduated in 92. Uh, so, then, uh, so then you go to uh, QU, which is a good, uh, a very good school. So what happened there that turned you uh, into politics or, turn, or got you on the path toward uh, politics? Oh, believe it or not, I, I actually went to Quinnipiac as a pre-med biology major and uh, quickly learned when I took my first biology lab that I was not going to be a doctor. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't very exciting for me um, and gravitated towards um, some of the more cam campus activism that happened there. 
What was going on? What was what was the type of activism that was happening on campus uh, in the nineties? I don't uh, remember any. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't it wasn't like a national movement or anything, but there was activism around you know students having a voice in the administration, making sure we had representation on the board of trustees. Uh, I was very involved in student government, making sure that the student fees that the college was charging were being used for actual student activities. Uh, decided to run for president of the student government and, and won and uh, you know, managed a budget of half a million dollars um, for a couple of years there at Quinnipiac and uh, gravitated towards political science and history naturally. Uh, started to learn about um, economics and politics and how politics can be a vehicle for social change. Uh, some of my early heroes were Martin Luther King Jr. learning about the civil rights movement, uh, learning about how people make change uh, throughout the world. And uh, then I you know, was one of the persons who led the college chapter of the Quinnipiac uh, Young Dems and got involved with them and for volunteering in local racism campaigns around the state. And then, uh, so you probably graduated around uh, what, 98 or so? 98, yep, class of 98. Yeah. And uh, so what was your first job out of, out of Quinnipiac? Mm-hmm. Uh, my first job out of Quinnipiac was I was legislative aide uh, for the Speaker of the House, Maura Lyons. She was the first female Speaker of the House. It was my f- first real job in politics. And uh, I was uh, responsible for um, helping navigate uh, her legislative agenda through the committee process. So my job was I would meet with lobbyists on a regular basis. That's how I met a lot of labor lobbyists. And I would draft white papers for her to brief her on legislation. We would assist in hearings, putting testimony together, recruiting people to testify, press releases, um, managing the dais with her on the House floor, um, helping her navigate um, you know, the floor who wanted to speak, you know, helping manage debate, um, as well as picking her up in, you know, in my car at four o'clock in the morning and driving her all the way up to Hartford. What was your parents' reaction to, to that job right out of uh, college? Was there, was there a sense of pride? or uh, And I'm the black sheep of my family. I'm a reporter from a law enforcement family. So, but yeah. I'm just wondering, was that, uh, what was their reaction to seeing you work uh, in public service? I think they were, you know, they were excited. I just graduated from college, so they were just, okay, what are you going to do now? I'm still living at home, <laughs> not making much money. Um, and um, I think they were just trying to, you know, I think they were very supportive and, and proud of me, but I think they're also trying to figure out, okay, where's this going? You know, I, I uh, was contemplating going to law school um, and decided not to um, after I got, uh, after the legislature got a job with the Carpenters Union. Uh, I met a lot of labor lobbyists and learned a lot about the struggles of working people. And they offered me a job uh, working for them as an organizer and a, a wage enforcement specialist that would put together cases for people who were cheated out of their wages. Gotcha. Okay. I was going to say what, yeah, wage enforcement specialist, but you know, one thing uh, in terms of of lobbyists and and, and to some extent unions now uh, in this day and age, um, you see it on uh, the Valley Indie Facebook. There was, I I posted a story uh, just to have sort of filler uh, uh, on the Valley Indie page about teachers being afraid to go back to school. And for the first time people were saying, fire all the teachers. There seems to be uh, somewhat of an anti union sentiment to some uh, extent among people, I think in, in, in Connecticut today. And the thought of lobbyists sometimes pe- make people uh, hold their noses. And then it comes to, well, you're an insider, you've been inside this political system right. and sort of the ruling class because the unions run uh, Hartford. How do you deal uh, with that assertion? It's a, I mean, it's a stereotype, yeah. Yeah. but how do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, I think about it in the same vein, you know, there's an old joke, no one likes lawyers until you need one. Um, it, 
well, the way I deal with it is, you know, working people need a voice in the capital. Um, the reality is big corporations um, have a much outsized voice in the capital. And um, you have to organize. You have to make sure you have people who are your allies and who support working people to have living wages, to have access to high affordable, uh, to quality affordable health care, uh, to funding our public schools. Uh, you need people who advocate for you. Um, and those are a lot, you know, a lot of times they call those lobbyists, but I don't think about it in the same vein. Um, it, it really matters what you're talking about. It matters what you're advocating for. And you have to be able to put pressure uh, on state government to move in a way that supports people getting into the middle class and then staying there. And uh, that's the work that I've been doing for 25 years. And, uh, you know, I will go to my grave uh, doing it because it's incredibly important. Not only is it the right thing to do to make sure people can make a living with one job and have health care when they get sick, be able to stay home with their families for the birth of a child or a sick grandparent or a sick spouse. Um, but I think it's good public policy because um, right now what I see is people working their tail off and they're not making enough money to survive. Uh, I talk to them all the time when I'm knocking on doors. Um, they're one emergency away uh, from financial catastrophe. We've learned anything from this coronavirus crisis. Um, it's how much it's laid bare, the gross income inequality in our state, whether it's in the Valley or even parts of Hamden and up to Nagatok, people who do the right things, play by the rules, are working really hard, sometimes multiple jobs, and are still just not getting ahead. They don't see a future for their kids. Um, they have children who they've almost bankrupted themselves to send to college, and they're coming back home and having to live in the basement because there's no jobs. Um, that's un-American. Un that is just simply wrong. And so that's the future I'm fighting for. That's what I really believe in my bones. It's, it's the life my parents were able to provide for me um, through their hard work and sacrifice. And what I hear on the doors is that uh, people's hard work and sacrifice is not paying off the way it used to. That's got to change. And uh, that's, that's what I truly believe. And that's what I'm fighting for. And then, George, how did you, uh, you're married. What's, what's your wife's name? My wife's name is Rebecca. Rebecca, college how did you, what did you say? For college sweethearts. Co so yeah. You met her at QU? Okay. Yeah, well, she uh, met me. She says, I don't remember. Have? And I probably don't. I was uh, 20 years old or 19 years old, very young. She pursued me, actually. <laughs> was, oh, wait, you know what, George? You just, uh, on my end, your internet stopped working, so you froze up there. Okay. Uh, so let's, uh, just, I had asked how you met, oh, it might be, you know what, this might be storm related because it says my internet is, uh, I got you is now. unstable. Okay. And I have you. All right. So that's a little blip. And that's one thing. The wind is howling out there. I apologize. All right. Uh, so I had asked you, uh, how you two met and I didn't hear the answer. We're, we're college sweethearts. We met in college as freshmen. And, um, the way she tells the story, she saw me on the quad and, and decided to uh, call me up and my freshman dorm and asked me out, asked me out uh, which I was unaccustomed to. Uh, but I, we did and, and started dating and you know, uh, decided to uh, get married and um, have kids. And we have two boys, we're 15 year old now, twin boys. And then how long have you been married? Uh, I gotta think about it for a minute. Hang on a second. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> this is, I'm gonna get in trouble for this, Eugene. You may have cost me something here. Sorry. Uh, this is, uh, we got married in 2001, so it's gonna be, it's 19 years. I know it, I know it, 19. 20 yeah. years next year. And, and your wife's a principal. You had mentioned during the debate that your wife yeah. is, a, is a principal. And I gotta say like, uh, during that debate that uh, the Valley Indy and, and New Haven Independent, well, that Paul Bass dragged me into essentially. <laughs> uh, but it was really Sam who did a ton of the work and Harry. 
Uh, yeah. I was amazed you guys were able to give one minute answers to all these uh, these questions. That that's not easy to do. It's uh, hard. It really doesn't do justice to the questions. It's really. Uh, it's tough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it got it got a lot. It got a lot out there in in, in terms of of policy stuff. But one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, COVID nineteen is still very much here. Uh, I'm terrified to send. I'll admit it. My my kids back to school. My my son has asthma. Uh, you know, the, the, each school has come up with their three plans, but uh, you know, they're, they're, I don't know. It's just such a strange time. What is it like uh, in terms of campaigning? Uh, I'm distracted by what's going on in the world with, with, with this virus. Do people even know there is a primary as of this recording one week from today and how has it changed how you're reaching out to people? So we, we um, you know, I was concerned about door knocking, which is such an important part of campaigning. So we waited a little while, but I decided to try it. And, um, you know, obviously being safe, wearing a mask, socially distancing, I step far away from the door after I knock or ring a doorbell. Um, I ask people for permission to talk to them and whether I can give them my, uh, my literature. And, you know, I've been pleasantly surprised. Nine times out of 10, people are very receptive and they're talking to us. And uh, it's, it's been really a great reception. Uh, out there. So I just try to be careful and be respectful. Are uh, people aware? Do they know? Are Because are they just distracted yeah, by, uh, people, do they know there's a primary? Yeah, people are aware. Um, you know, every once in a while I get someone who isn't. But no, people are aware. I think there's a lot of attention right now in the country with, because of coronavirus and the, the, the highlight, you know, that that, uh, that that has caused people to really be more aware of government officials and what government can do. And then the difficult economic situation we're in because of coronavirus, people are definitely have a heightened sense of awareness, I think, of their own vulnerabilities and, and what they're looking for in leadership. And so, then how about, I'm sorry, go ahead. Dude. That's okay, you're fine. No. I was going to ask you, uh, I'm going to throw yeah. my narrative at you, right? Because that's where the media, we throw narratives around <laughs> to make it easier because we're not that smart. Uh, so my totally uninformed as an observer. I just read about uh, the race really through other media. Uh, so I have, you know, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, my take on it is that what's happening with this primary, it's sort of a reflection of what we're seeing all over the country where you have a, uh, a, a younger, uh, progressive candidate sort of staking his claim and uh, trying to usurp what might be seen as, uh, as an establishment candidate or a moderate Democrat. How do you respond to that? And, and, and do you label yourself, I'm a moderate Democrat or I'm... No, no, I'm a, I'm a working class Democrat. I mean, I always uh, kind of, you know, chuckle a little bit when I hear those things because my entire 25 year career has been anything but, I mean, I have fought against the establishment for 25 years, just last year with the stop and shop strike. I mean, if everyone, anyone wants to call pulling 35,000 workers across New England out on strike moderate, uh, good luck. Uh, that was a hell of a 11 day fight that preserved healthcare for 35,000 workers, you know, uh, one wage increases and benefit increases. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I've been involved with for 25 years. There's nothing moderate about that. And uh, is there any type of, uh, uh, why do you think uh, you have an opponent? Why, why is someone trying to primary you, given the fact that, uh, you know, you, you ran last time and, and came as close as a person could come to winning? What's the, what's going on there? Well, I mean, you know, everyone has a right to run, um, as I did last time and as I do this time. And, and, you know, that's why we have elections, to have people go out and make their cases and 
voters decide who they want to represent them. I think my record speaks for itself. And I think you're seeing that in the overwhelming support that we're getting from various organizations and groups uh, in this primary. And uh, it's because of the work that I, we've been putting in, whether it's in the ballot last year or the stop and shop strike or the stances I've taken, the fights I've been in. And uh, that's what these elections are about. Uh, and then in terms of sort of your, your backstory, you had said uh, after graduating college, you, you were a legislative aide, and then you got a job uh, with a, a carpenter's union. And then I cut you off and went into uh, marriage and all that. But let, let's go back to the career path. Uh, what is your official uh, a title today? Because I'm fascinated by unions and, and like uh, how people work with them, because I don't know that whole uh, career path. Yeah, so I spent uh, 10 years, I'll take, you, I'll take you through the timeline a little bit so you can kind of get a sense. Um, so I spent 10 years with the Carpenters Union, organizing and working on wage cases, you know, advocating for workers. We put on uh, tons of uh, testimony and uh, tons of organizing drives to try to get good uh, construction jobs for carpenters. Then I took a job with United Food and Commercial Workers International out of Washington, D.C. I would travel around the country. Uh, I would get dropped into different campaigns, uh, whether it was a collective bargaining fight or a strike or trying to earn people wages. And then in 2008, I was dispatched to work on the 2008 Obama campaign in battleground states in North Carolina, Maine, and other places, uh, getting President Obama elected. I uh, came back home and got a job with one of our local affiliates in Farmington, Local 919, which represents about 7,000 grocery workers at Stop and Shop. And I've been there for five years. And I'm um, the union the collect, the representative for those members. I'm also the director of our organizing department, which uh, allows me to you just stay in touch with workers, help them organize and speak up for better treatment and a voice on the job. And so, then let's, I'm sorry, go ahead. I don't want to. That's what I do every day. So, <laughs> In terms of, let's say uh, you get through this primary uh, and, and let's say you, uh, you defeat uh, the incumbent in, in November, uh, do you can you hold can you still hold your position and be a state uh, a legislator? Is there any kind of conflicts there? How does that work? No, almost everyone up in Hartford has a has a full time job. As you know, it's a part time legislature, and um, you, know, you have to have a a job <laughs> for support your family. So you know that's I've I've done this um, working in the Capitol, whether as an advocate or as an aide, uh, long enough. So you just have to find a way to balance it. Of course, you have to get support from your employer, which I do and um, be able to balance your schedule and do it in a way that, you know, is faithful to what you have to do at work and faithful to your constituents. Uh, and then in terms of if you were to be elected and you go up to Hartford, what would be uh, your first priority uh, for the people of your district? Well, I mean, uh, I have a lot of uh, different things I want to fight for, um, but some of the, the more, I guess, bigger ones that I'm really concerned about one is healthcare. Um, we need to do a much better job of getting people um, good, high quality, affordable healthcare. Um, the fact is our premiums are too high, deductibles are too high. Um, there's no reason why we shouldn't be uh, getting more of our pharmaceuticals or drugs from Canada, which is cheaper. So one of the things I'm really passionate about, part of it is because of what I saw my mom go through as an asthmatic um, and not having qual high quality healthcare. My wife also uh, this past December, um, had stage one colon cancer that we have surgery for, and thank God she's doing okay. But I remember having a conversation with her um, after we got the good news that the surgery was successful, 
that uh, our healthcare was really good and we were going to pay zero dollars for it. But the procedure itself was almost $70,000. It's insane. And I know uh, when I talk to people on the doors that this is happening to lots of people. They're oftentimes remortgaging their home to pay for medical expenses or their coverage is really bad. It's not adequate enough. It doesn't have dental, it doesn't have vision. So healthcare is a really big priority for me and I'm going to be uh, in that fight to make sure that more people um, have access to high, high quality, affordable healthcare. I think uh, in addition to that, connected to that is good paying jobs. Um, we have to be able to create a society in Connecticut where one job is enough for people to uh, make a living, you know, and that's why um, I had supported the $15 minimum wage and was saddened to see Senator Logan vote no against that vote, essentially saying workers don't deserve a raise. Um, and uh, so that's an important issue for, for me as well. And then, of course, in, in the Valley, talking to elected officials, transportation, the Waterbury train line, uh, really important. Some, we need people to really push that and get more transportation up and down a corridor to spur economic activity. Okay. Well, Mr. Cabrera, that's pretty much uh, uh, all our time. Okay. Uh, I, I want to thank you uh, for coming, uh, coming on here and, and talking to me. And sure. uh, I guess we'll, we'll see what happens uh, August sure. 11th. Well, Eugene, I appreciate the opportunity and, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and enjoy our chat and, uh, you know, stay safe. All right. You too. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.